Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation. Good day and welcome to Extreme Common Sense with your hosts, Trisden and Ray. We hope to leave some of the social polarization behind and dig into the gray area middle of society and politics. When the far left and the far right hate us, we will have succeeded. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today, after just a little bit of a technical difficulty here, uh, Ray and I are ready to go. Ray, how's it going? No one knows about that, Tristan. You didn't have to bring it up. Well, you know what? I, I think <laughs> in full disclosure, I just think people need to know if we, we had some okay. previous technical difficulties. <laughs> so when we bring in our guest and he's very mad at us for the duration of the show, <laughs> we want the audience to know why. Fair. Yeah. Fair, fair. I am, and, and kudos to you. I'm looking very forward to talking with our guest. You can tell us just briefly, um, you know, how you met Mr. Shankman and what your relationship was and, yeah, well, and so forth. Well, I, I don't want to waste all his time reading his accolades, but this is sure. uh, certainly going to be pretty exciting for us as uh, people that listen to the show knows it's a couple of mid-educated guys talking politics. So now <laughs> we we have somebody that can come in and, 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 and really have some advanced knowledge. So best-selling author Rick Shankman is joining us today, written several books including Presidential Ambition, Political Animals, I Love Paul Revere, Whether He Wrote or Not, and Just How Stupid Are nice. We? Yeah, I love Just How Stupid Are We. I, I've got to read that one next. <laughs> <laughs> uh, founder of the History News Network, uh, he's award. Uh, excuse me, he's won an Emmy Award in some journalism. So this guy has done, man, a, a little bit of everything on the side of media. And I could not be more excited to bring him in. I actually got to see him speak at uh, my college when I was a student, and uh, oh, cool! Bought and read his book. It stuck with me, and, and I, I reached out to him to do a TV interview a couple years ago. And so uh, he was nice enough to do that, so I just thought, why not pester him every couple years until he gets smart and blocks me on all of his devices? Fantastic. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so without further ado, let's bring in Mr. Rick Shankman. Hello, Rick. Hello, how are you doing? And uh, that was probably uh, a unique introduction. I've not heard anything <laughs> like that before. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I think unique is one of the nice ways that uh, that, that we're described here on uh, Extreme Common Sense. So, Rick, you're in Seattle, is that right? Yeah, correct. All right. And, and I believe, Rick, in reading a bit about you and your bio, a Harvard man as well, Yes. Uh, I went to uh, Vassar undergraduate, Harvard grad school, and I dropped out of Harvard grad school when there were no jobs and went off to uh, do journalism instead of history. Okay, cool. Uh, then I came back to my love of history and wrote a bunch of books. So what can I say? Both uh, historian and journalist. Okay, great. So what does a day look like for you, Rick, right now? I mean, do you spend a lot of time writing? Uh, what's your days? Well, I uh, formally retired uh, a couple of years ago, and so my schedule is a lot more relaxed now, which is why I can do interviews like this and not worry that uh, somebody's going to tap me on my shoulder and tell me, hey, you need to get to work, pal. So <laughs> my days basically involve uh, getting up in the morning and reading the New York Times uh, pretty thoroughly and then going through uh, blogs and Twitter and newsletters and then uh, – uh, instead of reading books, I'm now really into uh, listening to books. So I'll go out for a four-hour or five-hour bike ride when the weather's nice, and I'll just listen to a book. Yep. And I can get through a couple of books, you know, in a week that way. It's uh, it's really uh, fantastic. I love Audible.com. Yeah. Were you, were you uh, an advocate from the jump on on audiobooks, or were you slow coming to? Yeah, it? I, I yeah I started listening to them uh, well years and years ago, okay. but. Um, you know, I've got cataracts in my eyes now, and reading is a little harder than it used to be. Right. So uh, after 40 years of uh, reading books uh, now, um, I'd really like to just listen to yeah, them. Very cool. Yeah. And I've got into bicycling a bit over the last year, so <laughs> it's really, really a nice, uh, relaxing thing to do. So, And I listened. I've, I've been podcasting myself on the bike rides, but yeah, I, the book on tape is a great idea. Yeah, yeah, and uh, 
I'll, I'll make, make a pitch here for a uh, local Seattle uh, bike company uh, called Rad Power Bikes. So uh, when I go on these four or five hour rides, uh, I'm not just using my own human power to keep me going, nice. especially in Seattle where we have a lot of hills. So it's uh, a battery powered uh, electric bike yeah. and um, man, it's just, it's, it's life changing. It's life changing experience. I can go 50 miles in a day and it's like nothing. That's outstanding. And that's very cool. And they just, they yeah. seem to really be the future electric bikes. They are getting a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of buzz about electric bikes. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wind up using my car just uh, once a week now. Wow. Very Other cool. than that, I'm on the bike. If I got to run to the store, I just get on the bike. I've got a pannier that I clip onto the bike and put in groceries or whatever it is I'm buying. Um, so yeah, it's it's really it changes. It's changed my life. I've had it now uh, coming up on three years, and it's uh, it's really exceptional. Yeah, that's great. And that's a cool town to to bicycle in. I spent a couple summers coaching baseball actually in Seattle, and and loved the city. But uh, like just looking at the lay of the uh, of the area, that that would be phenomenal to have an electric bike and just go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's all kinds of uh, bike paths that they've created over the last decade or so. So you can just go and go and go and still be on bike paths and avoid uh, you know street traffic and any danger that uh, you might have with vehicles uh, trying to. Uh, uh, hog the road. Oh, that's Rick, awesome. did I also see a uh, New Jersey background when I was reading about yeah, you? I yeah, thought I, so. It's, it's my deep, dark secret. Uh, <laughs> that's It's a good <laughs> secret. I, I myself am a Jersey native, a Garden State native. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a little town called Hohokus. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Bergen County? Bergen County, yeah. 25 miles from New York City. Right. And um, only had, you know, like 1,400 people in it. Everybody knew everybody. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was a great place to uh, to grow up. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed my childhood there. Is anybody left? Any family there? No. Um, fortunately, I'm old enough now. That my parents have uh, you know sure. uh, right. passed into the the next world, and right. uh, I've got one sister, and she's living in Massachusetts. I should say I've got one Kentucky connection, which is okay. uh, uh, I actually worked at WTVQ. Uh, yeah. For my first job in television. Oh, nice! That's, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I know the state a little that, bit. That's okay, the cool. local ABC affiliate. Is that right? Uh, back when I was uh, there, it was ABC. I don't know what it is I now. I think it's still ABC. So, yeah, I think, I think it still right. is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. ABC. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, we've got to talk some politics because I think. W- All right. Good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the fascinating things, you know, and. If you remember Kentucky, it's a red state. I think since Donald Trump, it's become whatever color would be somehow brighter than red, like extreme red. But uh, it's a it's a fascinating place to live. Um, what is what has changed politically uh, for you, Rick, since uh, since the Trump era? I mean, how, how do you, what do you feel about politics now versus eight years ago? Uh, profound disillusionment. Mm. So I wrote a piece uh, for the History News Network, which is a website I started 20 years ago that's now at uh, George Washington University, and uh, I've got a blog there. Um, the uh, piece was all about how I've been a historian for 40 years, and even though um, I've got a lot of knowledge about American politics, uh, nothing prepared me for uh, the uh, election of Donald Trump, a guy with zero experience in politics, uh, who's um, kind of a lunatic. I mean, he's 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 a crazy man, and this country elected him president. So uh, nothing prepared me in my history uh, studies for this. Even though, uh, of course, you know his appeal to xenophobia. Well, okay, we've had examples of xenophobia in the past. Uh, we had uh, we've had communist uh, witch hunts in the past, but we've never had a president who is as unhinged as Donald Trump, as untethered to facts as Donald Trump, and as willing to um, contravene norms as Donald Trump. So this is a whole new experience. Um, I think knowing history uh, always helps, but um, we are writing a new chapter, a very dreadful chapter in our politics, and I really fear for the future. 
Yeah. And, Frightening. And what do you see as the future? I mean, I know we just celebrated the one-year anniversary of January 6th. I mean, knowing that, that America is capable of this type of behavior, are we better off now or just knowing that we're, you know, is it setting up a dystopian future? Well, I'm pretty pessimistic. Uh, assuming Donald Trump runs again in uh, 2024, um, I think uh, he's made it very clear and the Republicans have made it very clear that uh, they will um, even override the vote of the people and install their guy, even if he didn't win his particular state. So in Arizona, uh, the state legislature, which will be Republican again, uh, will just decide Donald Trump is going to be the person that we uh, put our stamp of approval on. And it's in the Constitution that states have that right. So I don't think there's a whole lot that uh, the federal government can do about it. I know they're talking about reforming the Electoral Count Act, and they're uh, talking about including a provision that says if the people vote one way, um, the uh, state has to honor that vote. But I think that would wind up being thrown into the courts because the Constitution very clearly states that it's up to the state legislatures to decide which, um, well, the method of the election of the electors. So they can just reserve to themselves the right to um, say that uh, the legislature is going to pick the the next president. Um, and uh, boy, I mean, imagine the reaction if it turns out that, you know, Donald Trump is installed in that manner. I think we'll have some kind of explosion here. You think the George Floyd um, demonstrations were big? Well, right. wait for 2024. Rick, you uh, may, and I don't see a, a way around it, honestly. You may or may not be a betting man, but how do you how do you handicap Trump running again in 24? What What's your thought? Will he take that plunge? I don't see why he wouldn't. Yeah. It gives him all kinds of protections. Um, it's very difficult to indict a guy who's running for president. Um, any prosecutor, uh, either uh, local, state, or federal, is going to think twice about indicting somebody who's running for president. And, um, you know, there are some investigations of him ongoing. I don't know if they're going to indict him, but um, he's got a lot of uh, political power, and he's a guy who respects power. So, uh, the more power he has, uh, the less likely it is that he can be taken down. That's a great point. And there's nothing more powerful than being the nominee of the Republican Party and running for president. Right. Are there any safeguards, Rick, at this point uh, with, I guess, three years left before that election? Is there anything we can do from a grassroots level or in any level to try and keep things fair? Well, the, the biggest problem, of course, is public opinion. Hmm. So... As long as Donald Trump has 74 million people behind him, um, which is uh, the vote tally that he got in the election just a year ago, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to defang him or the Republican Party. I mean, this is uh, what we've seen in other countries that have gone authoritarian. Uh, if you have a sufficient number of people in the electorate who are willing to stand by this guy, uh, then it's extremely difficult to uh, establish any guardrails that are going to hold. Uh, the people just keep pushing and pushing against the guardrails, and they wind up collapsing. This system only works if, you, if the party that loses recognizes that they've lost right. and admits it and says, okay, we're going to do better in the next election. Right. Until the Republicans concede that they lost this election, which they have yet to do, um, we're going to be in trouble. Which is exactly so, why he is so dangerous. He is truly a threat to American democracy. Trump. Uh, yes, I, I, I don't see, um, I don't see us, you know, to me, this is a generational challenge. Uh, this is not going to be, you know, even, you know, Donald Trump's an old man. At some point he's going to die. But the Republican Party has gone uh, 
full-on authoritarian here. So, so can you talk to that, Rick? How I, I'm 61. I've followed politics since my 20s, and you know we talk about divisions, and of course you'll hear people say, "Well, you know we weren't quite as divided as we were in 1860, but boy, we're pretty close." How did we reach this point? What is it that those 76 million who voted for Trump? Uh, what are they so disillusioned with and so disillusioned by? We as uh, uh, Tristan and myself as left-leaning individuals, I'm going to probably include you in that. Is there something we're missing about them, Rick? Is there something that they're crying out for that they're not getting? Where does all this disillusion come from? I think it's basically the grievance politics that uh, the Republican Party has been practicing since the 19. 19- uh, 50s, really, when um, uh, the civil rights movement uh, took wing. So what's happened is we're seeing the same kind of uh, phenomenon today that we saw when uh, whites who were then in the Democratic Party uh, were resisting uh, um, desegregation by the courts. Right. Uh, what was the reaction? The reaction was impeach Earl Warren. Right. Uh, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The reaction was to close down public schools and to move uh, literally into private schools where they could be white only. So these are extreme measures that were taken in the 50s in response to the Civil Rights Movement. Mm -hmm. Now today, everybody claims that, oh, they all honor the Civil Rights Movement. They all honor Martin Luther King, right? We've got Martin Luther King Day. Uh, coming up here. Uh, But in fact, the behavior is very, very similar to what we've been seeing. And um, the Republican Party under Richard Nixon figured out that they could win national elections uh, by stirring the grievances of white people against black people. And it kind of, uh, for a while, um, uh, was kept within bounds. In partly, it was just plain old inertia, which is a major force in history, which is you usually just kind of keep going along the same path that you've been on. But uh, Donald Trump has taken it to the next more, much more dangerous level where he's now just denying basic facts. And I don't know if he's personally living in some uh, fantasy world or if this is just a world that he has put on display for public consumption. Uh, but we are at the point now where um, if you go outside and say the sky is blue, the Republicans will say, no, the sky is green or red or something, and all their people follow. I mean, we've seen this even with the vaccination debate, which is just Crazy. stunning. Yeah, It's just stunning. Uh, I mean, people are now going on and saying, drink urine uh, as a way to prevent uh, you from getting COVID. I mean, this is, we're we're in nutso territory here. We're in nutso territory. Rick, on the heels of of that, do you have an opinion on that? I I don't know how much you've studied Trump, but does Trump believe the stuff he's saying, or does he know, like everybody else does, it's ridiculous? Well, you know, he's, he's... Supposed to not be a politician, but he does have one of the politician's uh, chief attributes, which is the ability in the moment that you're saying something to believe it. (laughs) As human beings, we um, come equipped with a cheater detection radar. So if somebody is standing next to you face to face and they are lying to your face, most of the time, you can tell when somebody's lying to your face uh, if you know them and they're telling a lie because you kind of have a good sense of when they lie and when they're telling the truth. And they'll usually display kind of nervous tics in one way or another. They'll reveal themselves. The best politicians don't. They can just lie to your face and they don't give away any hint of nervousness about lying. Donald Trump, in this way, is a great politician. Uh, and this is no compliment. Right. But uh, his sense of shamelessness means he can just lie without anybody uh, knowing that he's lying. In other words, where he is aware that he's lying. 
Um, does he, when he sits back, really understand? I have no idea. I can't get inside the black box that is Donald Trump's brain. I'm not sure I want to go there, honestly. It's a pretty ugly place up there. So, and I think you've touched on a little bit of this too, but it's a lot of these phenomenon surrounding Trump politics, in my mind, social media are so new that it's probably hard to find historical comparatives uh, to go back and say, well, this is kind of like that. But there's not a sense of general reality right now that we all can go by because it seems like, and even our side, we get our news in a bubble. To even get out of the liberal bubble, we have to search for you know, opposing views. And I'm sure it's even worse when you maybe are not the smartest person and you don't want opposing views. And all you're being spoon-fed is things that you completely agree with, no matter how far off the wall. So how do you fix and find a semblance of a reality that we can all support? I mean, isn't that something that we're going to have to do eventually? Yeah, well, we... Uh, so, so I wrote a book a few years ago to try to explain... Um, how human beings uh, behave politically. Uh, it's called political animals. Uh, and I let me share some of the research uh, so that I think that will help answer this question, which is a profound question. It's a great question. Um, we don't have a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. What we have is a human being problem. And the human being problem is that... Um, in small groups, we do politics really well. Uh, one do, what do we do? We gossip a lot about people who have power in the group, like the guy who's the, the leader of the group. All day long, all week long, you're, you're gossiping with a small group who actually understand this person. They've lived with this person. They've probably heard this person having sex because they live in a small community. They know um, their positives, they know their negatives. And the human brain evolved to work best in a small group. Our problem is that our brain did not evolve to live in a mass society like the ones we experience now. That's our fundamental problem. So, for instance, reading people, reading politicians, um, if you live in a small group, you get to know who are the leaders really, really well. In our mass society, we don't get that intimate knowledge. So all the different ways our brain can help us decide who's a cheater and who's a truth teller, well, they're kind of disabled in the modern world because now you have to rely on the media to give you clues. Well, that means that we are at a fundamental disadvantage in mass society. Now, that's just about reading people. Then there's the question of the truth. We human beings don't actually want the truth. What we want is the truth that serves our ends the best. So we want our version of the truth, as Harvard Steven Pinker puts it. And what that means is that when we encounter information that is contrary to our own views, what do we do? We shut it off. And brain scans have shown that we literally shut off the flow of information. Back in 2004, an Emory uh, scientist, neuroscientist, did these studies where he put Republicans and Democrats into an MRI machine to look at their brain when they're being told something negative about the person that they uh, plan to vote for in the election. So we put Bush voters into the MRI machine and Kerry voters. And what he found was that in both cases, both the Democrat and the Republican voters, when they were told information contrary to their impression about their own candidates, in other words, negative, aversive information about their guy, their brain literally cut off the flow of that information so it wouldn't go to the rest of their brain. That's just stunning. That's amazing. So, we're, yes, we're at a real disadvantage here because our brain tells us uh, what we're experiencing in the world, but it doesn't favor the truth. So is there a way around that? There is one, and I, you know, my book is 300 pages, so I can't 
summarize the whole thing in just this short uh, time period. But I do want to share with you one optimistic finding that I found. Um, there is a uh, theory called the Effective Intelligence Theory, AIT, that helps us understand how human beings manage to survive. If all we did as human beings was uh, pursue our politics according to our own advantage, and we never confronted reality, well, we would have disappeared as a species because at some point you have to confront reality. If there is a tiger crossing my path, I damn well better react to it and not ignore it, right? Otherwise, I'm going to be eaten. So the same is true in all kinds of aspects of human experience. So what these scientists have come up with is this theory that explains how do we get real? How do we overcome our bias and get real so that we are taking reality at face value and not filtering it through our own biases? And here's how it happens. When we encounter something that is a mismatch between the way we think the world works and the way it's actually working as demonstrated by what we're seeing with our eyes or hearing with our ears, we get anxious. We get in the pit of our stomach a feeling of anxiety. It's a very physical experience. And at that point, we go from allowing our unconscious desires to drive our behavior and we shift to conscious thinking. And when we do that, we reevaluate what's happening to us. That gives me great hope. What that means is that ultimately, the Trump voters and these anti-vaxxers, when they encounter enough reality that says what Trump is saying is not matching up to my experience of the world, then they will pause and actually use their brain to reevaluate their commitments. And we see this in a very clear way with the anti-vaxxers. They're anti-vaxxers right up until the moment when they go into the ICU right. and they're practically on their deathbed or they are on their deathbed. Right. And then they say, doctor, give me the vaccine. Of course, by then it's too late. But they have this, they experience this conversion. That's their brain getting real. Well, let's hope that it doesn't take everybody going through the ICU uh, before they they have this uh, uh, come to Jesus moment. Right. So, uh, and again, I, I think that certainly happens on both sides. Like, certainly our side wants to believe. I mean, I guess it's a tribal mentality. We want to believe our side first, so we're going to find things that agree with us. I, I think the different. Absolutely. Well, the difference I'm seeing right now, at least, is on the Democrat side. Uh, the Democratic side, we aren't like our version of reality isn't going to cause the end of our uh, end of our government as we know it. I mean, if we're wrong and uh, climate change doesn't exist, the worst case outcome is a cleaner planet. You know, if uh, if the if the Trumpers are wrong, and as I feel like many of them are, like we could literally lose our democracy and end up in civil war. So. I guess my point is we do both see it tribally. I just feel like the outcomes are worse on one side as opposed to the other. So, and our show is about trying to find some middle ground or, or, or a little bit of middle. What can our side do to come together? I mean, because obviously we can't come together and say, okay, there definitely was a bunch of votes that weren't counted or, you know, we're not going to jump into a lie. But what can we do better to hear these people or to have these conversations? I mean, what can somebody that's middle left that wants to bring people together as opposed to just, you know, always arguing? What, what is there to be done on our side? Well, you just used the word arguing. Hmm. And that's, that's part of the problem. Um, so I, I don't think you could have lived through the Trump years uh, as a liberal without getting angry. 
Um, I certainly uh, experienced anger on a daily basis, if not on an hourly or minute by minute basis. You know, doom scrolling, as they say it on uh, Twitter, where there's just outrage, 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 outrage until your head's ready to explode. Um, if d- democracy doesn't work if everybody's angry, that's one thing that's a clear lesson of history. Um, when small groups are angry, that's okay. That's a motivator. Uh, the civil rights movement uh, activists, they were angry, right? Uh, Martin Luther King, even though he called for nonviolence, he was angry about the injustice that he saw on a daily basis. Um, but when everybody is angry, then democracy fails because angry people do not compromise. And I cite all kinds of social science research on this. When we are in an angry mode, um, we are less tolerant. We are less open to dialogue. We get fixed in our ways. um, And uh, we think the worst of the people on the other side. So lowering the temperature um, would help. Uh, But the problem is in our uh, media environment right now, you get clicks and the algorithms all seem to favor on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. They all seem to favor the most extreme voices in the community. So that keeps people on both sides really jacked up. So it's 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 a very difficult thing. I mean, I can't personally uh, restrain myself. I still am angry every time I hear Republicans, like just this morning, I heard um, that uh, Lindsey Graham was uh, saying he won't vote for uh, Mitch McConnell if Mitch McConnell doesn't come to terms with Donald Trump and reconcile himself to Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. And I hear that, of course, I get furious. It's like, come on, Lindsey, you, you're a smart guy. So, um, so and Rick- back in 2015, you recognized all of Donald Trump's limitations. But now you're a member of the cult. So Trump running and Trump getting reelected are two different things. Can he, can this man get reelected? He can get reelected because um, there are going to be a few states that are going to de- determine the election because of the Electoral College. And Republicans control the legislatures in those states. So, so all they have to do, all they have to do is just decide they're going to override the vote of the people. So what is your feeling on the movement that seems to be afoot to overturn the filibuster and to allow a a 50 votes margin to decide? And then my understanding is then you would have federal legislation overriding the states. But isn't toying with the filibuster a a very dicey situation? Well, it's a difficult situation. I mean, basically, it's just the, the rules of the Senate are... Uh, decided by a majority of the senators. So you can't filibuster a rule change. Uh, so 51 votes, and you can change the rules of the Senate. Right. And the problem is we have two senators right. who favor uh, the filibuster, or at least up till this moment that we're speaking right now, are favoring the filibuster. There's going to be a vote in a couple of days in the Senate, and you know maybe they'll um, have a sudden uh, road to Damascus change of change of mind. I mean, we can all hope and pray for that. Uh, the filibuster is a, is just really problematic. It means that a minority can obstruct the will of the majority. And because the Republican Party is in an obstructionist mode at the moment, it's very, very difficult to get any single Republican to vote in favor, for instance, of voting rights of the John Lewis Act, even though the last time it came up for a vote 16 years ago, um, these uh, people actually uh, voted for it. I think it was, I said 16 years ago, whatever 2007 is. I think that was the last time it, it voted, uh, it came up for a vote in the Senate. And a lot of these senators are still there who voted for it the last time. And you would think, they would want to end the filibuster on it so they could vote for it again. But the Republican Party in the Senate is voting in lockstep on a lot of these issues. So 
This is why the filibuster doesn't work. It, filibuster was always being used by uh, Southerners to block civil rights legislation. Right. It, it was used in other ways too, but most famously or infamously to block civil rights legislation. Uh, but these votes didn't occur all the time. Um, now the Republican Party really for the last uh, decade or so has been using the filibuster um, to veto everything. Often at the behest of our own U.S. Senator that represents, the, of, of whom Driz and I are constituents, that would be yeah. old country Mitch. I mean, he's really an outstanding politician. Regardless of your feeling, I've yet to vote for him. But he is amazingly skilled, is he not? Yeah. No, he understands the Senate. He knows those rules inside out, and he knows how to um, tie the Senate up in knots so that nothing gets done. Right. And here's the calculation he makes. Right. If I make it so that nothing happens in the Senate when a Democratic president is elected, the public is going to say, wow, these nincompoop Democrats, they're not getting anything done. I'm going to vote for the other team. That's it. Yeah. And I also need to just say this plainly. You know, so often when we talk about politics, we pretend that it's rational and it's actually not rational. Uh, politics has very little to do with reason. It mostly has to do with emotion, uh, our tribalism, um, uh, our partisan feelings and uh, so even when I say, you know, Mitch is stopping the Congress from getting things done, even if he, he stands off to the side and the Democrats are able to push through their legislation, that still doesn't mean that the public is going to reward Democrats. Uh, that's assuming that uh, politics is rational. Right. Well, Politics isn't rational. The, after uh, Lyndon Johnson pushed through the Great Society programs, which were very popular uh, at the time, uh, two years later, the Democrats lost uh, uh, dozens of seats sure. in the Congress in a, in, in, in a wipeout. Uh, so it's, politics is just not rational. Human beings are not rational. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> So, and I, I'm asking you this as a historian. Uh, it goes without saying, in my opinion, but I will ask it anyway for the record since we have a podcast. Have you seen any irregularities in the voting in 2020 of note? Because there seems to be a lot of people that believe that a lot of things were, were off and swayed uh, toward Joe Biden. Have you seen anything that, that gave you cause for concern? No. Of course not. I mean, uh, we've had all these. We've had all these uh, uh, courts. What is it? Something like sixty, sixty-one courts, uh, and uh, all of them have ruled that the uh, uh, the votes were um, were fair. And there's, uh, well, of course, you're occasionally going to have some guy trying to, you know, vote twice uh, for his dead wife or whatever. Uh, these are such small exceptions. They don't change the outcome of the election. All the uh, important people in the Republican Party who had control over the elections, they all agreed to that, which is why the states, even the Republican states, certified the results of all these elections. And as the Democrats keep pointing out, how is it possible that there was all this supposed fraud if all these Republicans got elected and only Donald Trump lost. Right. It wouldn't make any sense, right? <laughs> right. If you're gonna if you're gonna steal an election, you're not gonna just steal right. the the top guy, you're gonna go all the way down, right? Why wouldn't the Democrats have stolen enough votes to have uh, a two thirds majority in the Senate and the House? It just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't pass the, the smell test. Right. Why are people so and again, I don't want to pick on the other side only, and I'm sure you know we have our blind spots as well. But I mean, that seems obvious. Why do people not see that? Are they just uh, are they not following legitimate news sources, and they're just again in that bubble where everything they're hearing is pro Trump? I mean, that to me it makes me feel crazy when I hear somebody, especially somebody who's you know a senator or somebody smart enough to know better, so, you know. Come on and take up for that. It, it's, it, it hurts your, your soul and your brain. There's a, a great social science term that I came across in my research that applies here. It's called bounded rationality. Bounded rationality. And what it means is that we can't be any smarter 
than the sources of information that we rely on right. and that we turn to, right? We can only be as smart within that framework. Well, so many Republicans are only listening to very biased sources, and Fox News is one of them. I, you know, I used to appear all the time on Fox News. They don't call me. They haven't called me since Donald Trump got elected, because um, while before Trump, they were willing to hear me um, talk about reality. After Trump, they can't afford to have anybody on the air who talks about reality. Wow. So the Republican voters are getting their information from Fox or OAN or some biased sources, really severely biased sources. Now, of course, uh, the Republican response or the Trump response will be, well, the, the mainstream media is lying to you. Well, the mainstream media is biased. There's no question about it. Um, everybody's biased. You're biased. I'm biased. We're all biased. But uh, there is a vast difference between uh, having a bias um, and just going whole hog unthinkingly for one side. And that is what has happened with with Fox News and OAN and uh, some of these other outlets. Uh, it's a real problem. We can't run a democracy uh, this way. And basically, we have been uh, guinea pigs in, an ex in a vast experiment. And the experiment is, can you run a democracy with people gaining their information from these really slanted sources. So, Rick, I'm a person who believes that, you know, technology changes, people stay the same. So has there always been this inclination since the country's founding to to ingest false information, or has it been exasperated uh, or exacerbated by by the age we're in now? Is it just, uh, is it just so much easier to, to be in that cocoon and that bubble, or, or is this something we've always dealt with? Well, not until really um, the end of World War II did we have a mainstream media that was wedded to the principle of objectivity. So for, Yellow journalism and uh, such back in the day? Yeah, so right. Before that, right. basically newspapers leaned either hard left or hard I, right. I think, very and I think there, a lot of people don't realize that, Rick. I, I don't, you know, you go back to the founding and you're exactly right. The editors of the papers had their candidates and they went to bat for them. Sure. And a lot of the newspapers were actually uh, either owned or controlled by the political parties. Right. So they were they were always slanted. But the difference was um, you would get a newspaper once a day or once a week. Um, it wasn't dominating yes. everything that you heard about right. politics. Right. You could go to a town meeting and meet people who had different views. And so you would exchange different views. Um in the current environment, because of technology and algorithms and the way that they work, what's happened is people are only exposed now to a very narrow view of politics. And this does apply to both liberals sure. as well as conservatives. Um, this, is, this is not a liberal problem or a conservative problem. This is an American problem. Right. And we have to fix this. Um, I don't know how we fix it. Um, I guess I'm in favor of uh, kind of a public service commission approach, just like we have a public um, service commission in every state that regulates utilities. Um, I think we need a public service commission to regulate the um, technology companies to require that their algorithms not favor extreme views and that their algorithms put information in front of people that's um, contrary to what they would otherwise be seen. Well, you can speak to this much better than I because it's been your life, but I read somewhere, I remember reading that our American democracy is only as good as the people that are the purveyors of it. In other words, politicians, there, there's some incumbency upon them to be upstanding and to not take advantage of rules because the guardrails aren't that great. And with Trump, you have a guy who seemingly is ready to kick all them down and say, have at it. Yeah, well, we have, we have no protection in this country against a politician who's so shameless that he will put forward the big lie, right? right? Um, you don't want to 
you know, immediately leap to the Hitler uh, comparisons. But in this one fundamental respect, Hitler and Donald Trump are exactly the same, and that is they're willing to push the big lie. Hitler came up with the idea in Mein Kampf where he says, if you push a lie uh, that's big enough, that's so outrageous that ordinary people will think, well, there's no way he could be lying about that. It's go. so immense um, that they wind up believing it. And that, well, that core insight that that Hitler had and that Donald Trump is now uh, employing, and there's very little defense against it. Yeah. Um, the, the whole theory of the Founding Fathers was that we were going to be somewhat rational in our politics. I mean, they knew that people weren't angels, right? Madison said that in the Federalist Papers. He said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need a government. Right. Well, men aren't angels. But this is another category completely. You know, back in an earlier life, when I was in my 20s, I was a Republican. I, I was a uh, dyed-in-the-wool uh, defender of Richard Nixon through Watergate all the way up until June of 1974. Finally then, I had my, my, my uh, road to Damascus right. moment where I finally said enough is enough. But um, so I've been on the other side and I've read the intellectual sources that conservatives uh, turn to to understand how the world works. So I get their their outlook. But Donald Trump, this is something completely different. And it's new in the American experience. We've had a Joe McCarthy, right. but he was never elected president. Right. This is what's new. We never had one of these out-and-out -out demagogues sitting in the Oval Office. Even the very worst president, probably Andrew Johnson, um, he was a demagogue. Uh, he was a horrible human being. He um, was an out-and-out, -out, uh, blatant, uh, white supremacist racist. Uh, but he dealt still in with facts in the real world. So this is just, it's new and different, and it is frightening. And you know, I'd love, I, I'd love to be more optimistic. Yeah. Um, and I shared that one bit of social science research with you so that, you know, we can hold on to a little bit of hope. And the hope is that ultimately human beings, the way we are designed, um, we are responsive to a mismatch between how we think the world works and how it actually works. And when that mismatch gets large enough, we do change our minds. Ultimately, we'll change our minds. But what horrible experiences will we have to go through as a country before we come out the other end? Yeah, well... And that is the hopeful aspect, Rick. There are others who say that all democracies ultimately commit suicide. So let us hope this is not the start of a long, slow suicide. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that the uh, analogies to human uh, life uh, particularly work with uh, politics. Right. So um, uh, <laughs> When people talk about democracies committing suicide, it's like a, um, a human being committing suicide. Uh, that's the biological life cycle of uh, a living organism. Uh, democracy, uh, while it's very similar to a living organism in many ways, um, there's nothing saying that uh, it runs along the same life cycle as a living organism. So I, I can't yeah. resist that kind of... Uh, a metaphor handy as it is, and I indulge in it myself. Right, right. Well, I think we're getting close, but I do have to know why you think it is that Paul Revere didn't take that fabled ride of his. Oh, so that was... Uh, <laughs> I, I wrote three books, Exploding Myths of American History and World History. Which is great. That was, great. That was the second one. That's <laughs> uh, actually a line from a Warren Harding speech given in the 1920s when he was president. He was very upset because in the 1920s, debunkers were out debunking American history. Yeah. And one of the myths that they debunked was that Paul Revere uh, went through and he gave this siren calls screaming, the British are coming, the British are coming. Well, um, he did, he did uh, uh, try to uh, warn people that the Redcoats were coming. But of course, everybody in, back in uh, the 1770s was British. 
uh, right? I mean, there, there wasn't Fair. this. This May they were all loyal to the the crown until we finally uh, uh, broke with the crown. So uh, the whole myth emerged because of uh, uh, the Paul Revere uh, Longfellow poem. That's <laughs> yes, how we yes, yes. to the belief that Paul Revere was this signal figure in singular figure in the revolution. Well, he was just one of a bunch of guys who gave out warnings, um, but uh, it suited our purposes to focus on Paul Revere and make him a hero. And when the debunkers went after Paul Revere, Warren Harding as president said, I don't care whether the story of Paul Revere is true or not. I love the story. That's and great. that really tells you a lot about politics, yeah. right? <laughs> we like it, so we're going to keep it. Exactly. Nice. Well, Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. We, we can't thank you enough. Thank you. All right, Ray. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And I want to recap yeah. that with you. But since we're a little bit new to the podcast game still and don't have any sponsors yet before we hire our sales staff, I want to take a minute and discuss patriotism. The right wing of America is trying to co-op patriotism, and the left seems to be fine with letting them have it. To this I call bullshit. Just because we don't have 10-foot American flags flying over our Priuses doesn't mean we shouldn't love and be proud of our country. Our country is like when you take your wife to your office Christmas party and then she gets drunk and calls you an asshole in front of your co-workers. She pisses you off sometimes, but you still love her. This is our country. We can disagree with her when she is wrong. You will even have some screaming matches with her in complete disagreement. And of course, she did some really embarrassing things in college before you got together. But she is still the love of your life, even though she drives you fucking crazy. And the good old red, white, and blue can be a little crazy at times, but it's our crazy. We don't have to always focus on the negative. Sometimes it's good to step back and appreciate our country for what it is. Don't let the liberal media tell you that you can't be a Democrat and love the United States. It's okay to fly the stars and stripes. It's okay to even pledge of allegiance. I promise you won't get cooties, even if you don't necessarily believe the God part. It's a lot better to look at the other political party as teammates than enemies. Our grand experiment is far from perfect, but it's also pretty great to be an American. Even, Amen. Even as a libtard. There you even as a, I'm sorry, I stepped on your <laughs> You're, you're good. You were good. But that so, is right. the truth. It, it, yeah. yeah, and I do feel like it, they try to co-opt the flag in America. Like, we're also patriotic. It's not a one-sided well, thing. Here's here's proof of that. If you are driving home today and you see a pick up truck and there is a giant American flag coming out of the back that's secured in the bed of that truck, 99.99%. In fact, let me even go further. 100% <laughs> that dude is a supporter of Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so... But uh, man, so that was pretty exciting. We we just uh, spoke to Richard uh, Rick Shankman. Uh, man, that you that really, guy's got some. You, yeah, you realize what idiots we are? You know how how we are really pissing into the wind doing this podcast when you bring on somebody who actually has knowledge. But it was fantastic to listen to him. I mean, you know, and, and I thought it was so interesting at the end, Tristan, that he said, um, you know, obviously as you listen to him, you realize he's a left leaning individual. But he came to that naturally. He was a Republican. He was an all in as a young man, a conservative, until he got a little disillusioned through Nixon's, um, you know. Antics, and it is nice to know that you know I, I've definitely switched parties over the course of my life, and you know, and still will vote certainly for both parties at, at different times depending on the office. And you know, our our job, your old job, my current job, uh, definitely allows you to meet some of the politicians and, and make up your own mind individually. So, yeah, I mean, it's good I think to to think things through. But I, I think also as a historian and a rationalist, and what I would imagine as a pragmatist. You could still be a Republican, but you're probably not going to find a lot of fact guys, a lot of historians that are really big Trump guys at this point, after January 6th, after pushing the big lie for, you know, over a year. Yeah, I mean, democracy is fragile, and you have to um, put some faith in people's want to do the right thing. And it's just amazing now, a year and a half, uh, 16 months 
since the election in November of, of 2020 that Trump's still out there and, and, and saying what he's saying and all indications? I don't know. What do you feel? I don't think I've ever asked you directly. You think he's going to run in 24? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think unless uh, a, a good reason for him not to uh, shows itself, and I haven't seen that yet. So, yeah, I think at the moment, I definitely think he's going to run. Well, and something that Rick said in our interview, I think was pretty eye-opening, which is you get a lot of protection when you are the president of the United States. And that protection is probably paramount in Trump's life. So, I mean, a hell of a reason, a terrible reason to run for president. But with this guy, he could I could see him trying to take advantage of that. Well, and I thought, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking that that type of protection was reserved for the president, him, him or herself, as opposed to just a candidate but that that's a you know he's smarter obviously than i am so yeah i guess that coverage and protection would extend to the candidate for the republican party so yeah that's fascinating stuff i still have my doubt about whether or not he can be reelected tristan i mean maybe it's my own blind faith in a in america's you know message in future we, we did we didn't reelect him so why in god's name would we elect him again of course you also have the opponents, is Joe Biden going to be a very viable opponent in 24? You know, maybe not. Does he even run again? He says he is now, but is it possible he could opt out? Absolutely. Kamala, Kamala Harris? No. Well, <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it, but not a great candidate. Not going to get elected. Uh, not at the moment. In this country. Yeah. Not at the moment. So, you know, that, that there's these, there seem to be, and I know you see it too, um, these rumblings, you know, these sort of uh, grassroots little rumblings about Hillary trying it again. Yeah. And again, I would put that, not that she's the same type of person as Donald Trump, but I would put that in the same category. I think, you know, most Democrats are just done hearing about the emails. We're done hearing about the family. We're done hearing about all Golly. the old rumors from 50 years ago. Like, let's just run some fresh blood. And leave Hillary yes. at home. You know, she had her day. And and most Republicans would say the same thing about Trump. But to reiterate I think they would. To reiterate uh Rick's point, I don't think Trump's gonna gonna run for president and win a fair election at this point. But if you have four swing states that have Republican legislatures say, Well, we don't care, we want Trump to win then, man, you could really have a constitutional crisis and, and you could he could be right back in with uh, without winning. Right. And I think the concern for folks like Rick is that in 2020, because I remember having that debate with my brother, I was like, Tom, there's guardrails they're going to hold. And he said, no, they're not. And then somewhere, you know, in the ensuing months, he said, OK, you were right. But a lot of those it seems to be that those guardrails are actively being sought to be removed there's people actively seeking to remove those guardrails come 2024 correct and that's the real danger yeah, yeah that's the real danger scary the stuff right sure. which is which is why they're talking about the john lewis voting rights act and and actually doing away with the filibuster to get it done the only problem as i see it and I, rick uh, shankman i am not but Man, removing the filibuster, you know what? Republicans are going to have the White House again, you know, sometime in our lifetime. And, jeez, man, when the filibuster's gone, you know, it's kind of Katie bar the door. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, fascinating history if that happens. So we will definitely see. But it's been gone before, right, and came back. I mean, it's definitely not always been in the same form that it's been. Maybe not the same form, but I, I don't know that, you know, the United States Senate, we should ask Shankman, has ever voted on doing away with the filibuster, which is, and, and it may be, you know, I don't understand all of it. Maybe what Schumer's talking about is just specific to voting rights, that, that perhaps, but it stays in other places. So maybe that's the case. But look, at a minimum, Trisden, if if Schumer is able to get that done, and, and I think the two senators that Rick referred to are still mentioned in cinema, neither of whom are committed themselves to voting for it, because you need 50 votes to get the, the filibuster overturned. So they may come up short on that, although there's some speculation that Murkowski from Alaska would vote with the Democrats. But, you know, if, if Schumer gets that done, can you imagine how pissed off Republicans, the Mitch McConnells, the Lindsey Grahams would be? My God, yeah. it would just further it would just further the divide and <laughs> And up the ante even even more on the you know on that quote unquote you hate the term but the civil war that's brewing you know yeah no you're absolutely right but uh, 
Well, Ray, it's been a it's been a that was great, man. Thank you, thank you for getting in touch. Yeah, th- thank you for getting in touch with uh, with Mr. Shankman, Rich Shankman. It was a great uh, it was a great. Uh, I, I was hoping we wouldn't take up too much of his time and you know get out in a half an hour. And God, I think we went an hour, didn't we? Uh, yeah, uh, fifty minutes. So and and he's just uh, you know again I've reached out to him a few times and could not be a nicer human being. And uh, you know I think uh, he, he's he's one of the best guys and. Yeah, so I just couldn't be more appreciative of the fact that he continues to return my messages, which he is a better man than, than most. So, yeah, right. it was uh, great having right. him on, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was so sure much was. fun. Yeah. So, sure so yeah. Better, and, and, better than listening to two of us beat on endlessly or lead <laughs> on endlessly. Well, I mean, we, we do get in this uh, in this endless loop of kind of like our friends and our the local folks that we talk to, but it is nice to hear people with a little bit more education sometimes tell us where we're wrong and what we should know and things sure. like that. So, yeah, I mean, he knows a lot of science that you and I aren't pulling out, that's for sure. So... But yeah, I guess right. I guess uh, we should take a little time, and of course, thank uh, thank Mr. Troy Price. Without his uh, absolutely Troy. diligent help, uh, certainly in the beginning and uh, through the middle of the podcast today, uh, would not have been possible. So uh, so thank you so much, Troy, for taking your time. Uh, Nate with Stoveleg just does a, a, a great job. All our listeners, our German listeners, uh, you guys, we couldn't do it without you. Achtelieben. All right, guys. Uh, until next week. Ray, have a great week. You too. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Extreme Common Sense with Tristan and Ray. We hope you had fun and look forward to taking on another topic next week.